I, I didn't come from um, any sort of privilege. I mean, I grew up opposite Grenfell Tower, um, where the in in West London, where um, the big fire was quite a few years ago. Um, for me, I, I've it's always just been you. You work hard. You do your best. You especially at poker events, just host great events day after day, week after week, and um, I never really th thought about anything else. I just wanted to do a great job, basically, what I was doing. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Burnt Chef Journal, hosted by myself, Chris Hall, the founder of the Burnt Chef Project. This week's guest is Andrew from Amelia's Pasta. Andrew talks about his career as a professional poker player to running poker events and how he rekindled his childhood love for pasta by traveling around to learn more about pasta and how it's made before opening two restaurants focused on providing the very best pasta. We talk about his views on mental health, well-being, uh, starting businesses, and we talk quite a bit about social media and, and Andrew's views on that as well. So it's a slightly different chat to normal. Uh, and again, it's, you know, it's valuable to hear other people's views and opinions on such a, a wide subject matter. So I really hope that you enjoy this week's episode. On the surface, we at Lamb Weston are a leading global frozen potato product provider, but hospitality is in our roots. We are helping to chip away the stigma of mental health in the industry and truly believe in well-being through potatoes, which is why we are in full support of the Burnt Chef project. If you want to find out more about how we provide well-being through the humble potato or try a free sample of our award-winning products, such as our proper British chips, The Dukes, Follow us on Instagram at Lamweston UK. I do have a, a few things to say about mental health in general and um, sort of just uh, how I see um, how I see some things and why I think some people do. Um, and, and obviously, that's not everybody, but I know some people who, are especially high achievers, have mental health problems because their sort of expectations um, do not sort of align with the reality of stuff. And I, and I think. Um, for me, I, I know a lot of people who who, have, who who sort of really try to build business and do stuff, but they're not prepared to do the sacrifices and do the work. So naturally, they they get very unhappy, you know, and it goes into a bit of a. Um, so so I, that's just sort of the high achievers. Obviously, I understand, but a lot of other people have a lot of different issues. Um, but but I I think personally, just on 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 that note, I think there is um, a bit of a reverse stigma um, with founders and entrepreneurs. And um, whilst whilst the journey is extraordinarily tough, um, and you go through hell and back many many times um, during that process, in terms of in your head, in your in your in your body, in your, in in your sort of emotional state, um, for for me, sort of uh, as a founder, I, I have a deeper vision for things, and um, I sort of accept in myself that there's a price to pay for achieving if I want to do uh, try and achieve great things if that makes sense um, and um, for me there's sort of, there's, there's sort of always a, a risk reward with everything um, that, that comes to that and so I think for, from a from a general level I do believe there's a huge problem with mental health in hospitality and restaurants but in the general sort of business world I believe that well if, if you do want to build a multi-million pound business and, and a business that changes changes things there's, there's going to be a cost to that. You're not just going to be able to live your life, see your friends four times a week, talk to your family, 
see them four times a day like like let's say other people who who, who don't want to go on that journey basically um so, so actually something i've been upset at is i think the media doesn't really differentiate stuff is that yes it is tough but that's sort of what i signed up for if that makes sense um and I think that's where it sort of differs between, I guess, mental health of, let's say, founders and similar people and mental health of employees, which I think is extremely important and often overlooked. Um, but yeah, we can go on to, onto that a bit more <laughs> in, in, in other sections, basically. I can see it's something that you're, you're passionate about. So I'm, I'm interested to sort of probe that a little bit deeper because, you know, having, having, I mean, both of us are in situations where we're, we're, we're malt spinning plates and got a lot of things to juggle and it's incredibly stressful yeah, and, yeah. and incredibly hard work and I think that you're you're never necessarily resilient when you take on this challenge but it's something you build and, and grow with um, yeah exactly exactly and, and I think some people build it and some people decide it's not for them basically um but but I think yeah de definitely 100% agree um you, you don't know how tough you are until you go through it basically um, that's one of the key things, basically. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent, and that's a nice little soundbite as well. But uh, um, and then finally, we just—I mean, I think again, I think already tapping in and listening to you, I think that there's a few bits in there. But you know, I'd like to try and inspire others. You know, those who may be currently, you know, whether they have a mental illness, whether they are, you know, struggling in their job or with their life or goals. And really try and sort of just tap into any advice or any life lessons that you've learned along the way to inspire others. And, you know, what you were saying about starting a business and the hard work, and determination and grit that you need to do yeah. that. You know, we get a lot of different demographics from all over the world listening to this from students all the way through to, you know, retirees. And I think it's important yes. that one thing that I've learned over the last few years is that your your potential is limitless. It's on, you know, you can you can yeah. do whatever you want to do. You just need to apply yourself and be able to learn and invest the time into yourself to do so. Cool. And, and I think that the key thing with that is also, I think, something that people forget is it is limitless, but provided you're prepared to sacrifice a lot to get there. And I think a lot of people think just hard work and determination gets you a very long way. And it does get you a certain way, um, but it's really sacrifice that gets you that extra part of it and I think that's what a lot of people miss and I think that's why some people in this day and age do get very very upset with themselves or disappointed it happens to me it happens to all of us I'm sure um, but but um, it, it depends on what you're prepared to give up to go after what you want basically so <laughs> yeah true um, yeah not per not too much personal sacrifice there we don't want I, I think that's you know that's where there's there's we'll come on to this in more details because again it's yeah. good, good content i don't particularly want to i think definitely it's a good if it's a good discussion yeah yeah definitely we can go on to it i think there's varying views and 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 i, I guess from my perspective i don't want to share i'll share one perspective on it, another perspective they're not all necessarily my own points of view if that makes sense um but but i do think that um that there is an element in this in this day and age that um um things are misrepresented misinterpreted by the media and and when young people have such an access from a young age to the media and what they say i think it gets very misinterpreted which which in itself leads to a lot of the problems later down the line um unrealistic expectations yeah it's um yeah yeah i think we, i think we could uh, we, we'll talk for a while but to, i mean just to begin with then just for those who perhaps aren't familiar with yourself andrew can you just explain like a little bit about 
sort of your business and how you found your way into this this particular industry what what inspired you to to get to where you are now yeah definitely i'm i guess i'm 29 now um i started immediately when i was about 20 25 um started a lot of the development work when i was about 23 um and i basically i when i was 17 i, I wasn't actually going to go to uh, college or university i i had a poker events business which i was running uh, quite successfully and I, and i just want to go and, and do my own business and um keep running it i was also in addition to the business i was a semi-professional poker player um did very well uh, from that basically and um i i personally i i love i love studying academics but i guess i was young um i was making some some decent money for that age and i didn't want to go but fortunately my parents uh, sort of forced me t- to go and nonetheless and just told me to do it on the side and i guess that was the first my first sort of entry into hospitality was basically just running corporate private high stakes games um across london um and basically throughout I was doing that throughout college and university and then when i um f- finished um university um and as i was finishing i was starting to work on just s- some other things that were interesting to me and one of those things was i felt that throughout university um the pastor was extremely underrepresented in the uk and when it was where it was represented um be it in casual dining restaurants or high end restaurants i thought it was um i i didn't think it was right um on the casual dining side in the big chains of maybe you remember sort of 5 6 7 years ago um i always felt that um you're paying 10 to 13 pounds for a pasta they don't really care about the pasta they care about the pizza and the and the meat dishes so it was sort of a bit of a side thought and it was most likely sort of either frozen or um something something similar along those lines um in terms of as a dish and then if you wanted a good pasta you'd have to go a bit higher end maybe pay upwards of 20 25 pounds a bowl um and go to a higher end restaurant and i personally i felt because i i've i've loved pasta from when i was a little kid and i used to actually play around with the shapes my mum tells me um so she said to uh, one of our investors um when we were opening the first restaurant uh i used to play as a kid i used to sort of like to have different sauces with different shapes and see how they tasted basically so um i i can't remember too much of it myself when i was too little but i do remember i did love it a lot and i ordered pasta very frequently and i think as i got to university and i moved out of home it became increasingly difficult basically to to get good pasta and so for me i felt that that traditional homemade homely comforting bowl of pasta that that is just made of simple ingredients it's nothing fancy it's 100% natural freshly made i i felt i could do that far better than anybody else was doing it at a very affordable price point um and that's where media started and i and i started um traveling around italy uh, doing research with chefs st- uh, couch surfing staying in airbnbs um doing lots and lots of basically things just to get under the skin of italian culture and italian food basically anybody and everybody who would talk to me um i would talk to them about what i want to do and basically see if anyone has any advice or any suggestions or any places they think i should visit and sort of that was sort of me sort of uh, out of university just sort of couch surfing a bit and um uh yeah d- d- just um starting to develop the concept basically so that that was the early days of amelias and then we did a bit of street food stuff we were testing a few of the recipes i wanted to get a bit of experience um and then i was i was quite fortunate i 
Um, obviously, I've done a lot of groundwork, about a year, year and a half of groundwork on the concept and, and the recipes and the vision, how I want to see it. And um, I'm basically a few of my um, former uh, former clients of the poker business, I, I went to all of them, told them what I was doing, and uh, a few of them decided to invest. Um, so I didn't realize at the time, but it was some of those regulars who I'd been doing events for, for I believe over eight years, uh, seven, eight years come the time of when we were really looking to press go, had a few people who were like, you know what, you've got basically no restaurant experience, but we've got belief in you, and um, let's sort of give it a spin, see where you can take it, basically. <laughs> Um, and yeah, and we opened, then we opened in St. Catherine Docks and, um, and then that went, um, extremely well. And then we've opened a, so St. Catherine Docks was in November, 2016. Then we opened a second restaurant in uh, February, 2019, um, in, in Aldgate. Um, and yeah, that's sort of where we are today. As an introduction goes, I think Andrew, you've, you've, you come in at top spot to to go from a, yeah. <laughs> a semi-professional poker player to ending up with multiple businesses serving great great quality pasta. I don't think I've ever heard a story quite like it. And and so, like, do you have any Italian heritage? Is there anything specifically that that made you think, well, pasta is the the thing that I have to do in my life? Like, no, it, it was just I don't have Italian heritage. I'm actually. Um... I'm born in London, but my mum is Russian, my dad's Scottish. Um, so again, very, very mixed, uh, quite a mixed background. So I have a lot of Western and Eastern European roots in me. Um, and no, I don't have any Italian, but as I mentioned to you, I've, um, it, it's something that I just saw and it was just screaming at me. And I, I love the dish. And like I said, from when I went to university, I didn't feel very satisfied. So um, I, I want. I felt that was sort of my problem to fix, if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, I truly, yeah, I, I truly understand that. That's um, that's sort of how the Burnt Chef project was was born in a similar way, really. But so, obviously, you 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 managed to get investors on board to be able to start that. Do you think that um, yeah. your sort of, I mean, your was it the? I guess what I want to sort of try and find out and for others who may have a similar sort of passion and, and want to try and do something similar, would you say that money and capital was going to be the key driver for that or the fact that you had relationships and that you had a sort of a, a proven track record of, of determination and trying hard? Yeah, I, I'd say in general, I mean, uh, I, I didn't come from um, any sort of privilege. I mean, I grew up opposite Grenfell Tower um, where they in in West London, where um, the big fire was quite a few years ago. Um, f for me, I, I've it's always just been you, you work hard, you do your best, you especially at poker events, just host great events day after day, week after week. And um, I never really th thought about anything else. I just wanted to do a great job, basically, what I was doing. Um, and I, I think capital is a big barrier. Um, but I, but I also think it's sort of rightly a big barrier because restaurants are a very, very difficult business. Um, and, um, if, if, if you want to open a restaurant, you need a, a fair amount of money. I mean, these days it's a bit easier. You can prove your concept with pop-ups and stuff like market halls and other sort of street food type, um, sort of food halls, if that makes sense. You've got market halls, guys like, uh, Mercato. Um, and, and various other brands that are popping up, basically. And so they've basically made it far more accessible, um, which I think is great. 
uh, just to prove your concept or just to showcase what you can do, basically. Um, and and so yeah, I think capital used to be a, maybe a bigger barrier than it is now. I think now if you if you create a great product, um, there's far easier ways to get into the into sort of the spotlight um, than it was maybe five ten years ago. Basically, that's incredible. And how many sites is it? Just the two sites you have now, or do you have more? Yeah, just the two at the minute. Yeah, and plan plans to grow, no doubt, from from talking to you for a very brief. Period yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we we would like to, for me the whole vision from the beginning has been we want to basically share uh, comforting, fresh, affordable pasta uh, to as many people as we can, and all our food is made 100% naturally. Everything is made on site, start to finish, um, and that's what we keep to as an ethos for me. It's extra, ex- extremely important that um, the food is right because for me, just as we start touching maybe onto the mental health topic in a bit, um, what you eat has such a big impact on your body, on your mood, on your on your hormones, on your emotions, on everything basically. And so for me, my mum, she's um, she's she's actually um, a doctor, um, and she's um, she's she's focused in in natural medicines basically. And I, we've at home, we've always baked our own bread, um, made everything start to finish, you know. And and so for me, I I want to share that with others because I realize how how much of a positive impact it has on your body when you just eat good food. When you're eating constantly fried food, microwaved food, um, or dead food, as I call it. And dead food is basically food that is like maybe like created in a in a factory somewhere or genetically modified or um, and anything and along those lines, basically, that's dead food, and and your body just over time is is not going to react well to it. You might eat it today and tomorrow and six months time, and um and it'll be okay. But um, over time, your body will deteriorate if you eat a lot of those foods. And so for me, I, I want to create something that um basically does good essentially. And when people eat with us, I mean, the ultimate test for me was in the first two, two, two and a half years of when we opened, I worked every day in the restaurants from 8am till midnight, pretty much. Um, I can't remember having any days off and I ate our food every day. And, and so that was for me the biggest test after I went through that phase, I was like, that's that I had that confidence. I'm like, A, I wasn't fed up of it personally. Um, and, and B, I wasn't obese. I wasn't ill at the end of it. You know, uh, I was actually very healthy still. So <laughs> it's interesting. So, um, it's interesting you should say that. Someone pointed me in the way of a BBC documentary over in the UK recently, um, and it was talking about the impacts that processed foods have on not just your overall well-being and your physical health, but they actually change your brain and they like limit the um, neuroplasticity of it and. I think I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but they were saying that actually this this chap who went on this like processed food diet of eating as much of it as possible actually found that his brain didn't change back to the way it was before he started this diet. I don't know if you'd seen that at all. Um, no, I haven't actually seen it. And I think I should know. I'm not a, a, a qualified doctor or, or a medical professional. So all I'm saying is just my own observations, mm. um, just from A, from what my mum has sort of... Um, shown me over over the last sort of nearly 30 years and be over what people I see around me. And I, I think a huge part of the reason why um, we, we see gluten intolerances increasing dramatically um, over the last five, 10 years has been because people's guts are getting ruined, basically. And um, the, 
there's there's only one way your gut gets ruined, and it's what you intake into your body. Um, so I, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure it out. And if you just look at that's just one example, um, gluten intolerance is uh, uh, heavily to do with yes, it's to do with stress and other bits and pieces, but your gut in general um, is hugely influenced by the food you put into it, basically. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I think in general that that's a huge element, basically, uh, of it for me is, is, is we want to spread good food, basically. Good food that's alive and not dead food. That's, that's, that's impressive. I mean, the, the, I think for, for those who are interested, 90% of your serotonin your feel good happy hormone or one of your feel good happy hormones yeah. is actually produced in your stomach. So, um, I didn't know that actually. Did you not? It's, it's very interesting. No, it's very interesting. Yeah. There's more nerve endings in your stomach than, than most parts of your body. And the, uh, general serotonin feel good factor is produced through, I mean, you, you get it released as a result of, uh, exercise, but this is why mm-hmm. like when I, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer now in gut instinct. Ever since I had my own, you know, mental one of my mental illnesses or mental experiences when I was um, in my late twenties, I suddenly mm. I went after a voyage of self discovery for a couple of years. I had like this gut instinct, and I stopped ignoring it and started following it. And ever since then, things have just started to snowball and work. Mm. And I'm a big believer yeah. that your your gut has has evolved over you know thousands and thousands of years. It knows yeah. it knows more than your brain does in some ways, shape or mm-hmm. form. And it's actually responsible yeah. for a lot of how you live your life on a daily basis in terms of your, you know, your, how you're feeling and how, how, as you say, how the, how your physical and mental health performs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 A hundred percent agree. And I think it's often overlooked by, by, by a lot of people basically. And a lot of people don't, they, they look at stuff like their social media usage. They look at various other things, but they don't actually look at the fact that they're drinking five Cokes, every day and having whatever some other artificial sweet stuff and some fried food five times a week for example i mean you add all those things up and you can see why even without looking at other elements of people's lives you can see why um gluten intolerance uh not sorry gluten but just lactose um intolerances are are increasing and various other intolerances also so see my and pasta isn't my strong point. Like you talk to me about fine dining ingredients, I'm probably well aware. Well aware, but um, okay. when I think of pasta and I think of living off of pasta or eating it on a regular basis, whilst also putting my body through sort of seven days of work on a, on a weekly basis as well, I automatically think I'm going to end up. I'm going to end up, you know, rather rotund and a little bit larger. So, what is it about freshly made pasta that? You know, is it just the amount that you're eating in terms of being in the calorie deficit or, or is it something about freshly made pasta that that perhaps doesn't isn't as carb heavy or as reacts to your body in the way that perhaps pre-made pasta does? So, so I think it goes back to um, qu- quite simply, is it good food or bad food? Is it dead food or alive food? And if you make something freshly, whether it's bread or pasta, um, freshly every morning without adding anything unnatural into it, um, it's going to be good for you. Um, for some, some people might um, have certain, um, how do I say, um, uh, everyone's body is a bit different. So somebody can eat more pasta and someone can eat a bit less. So yes, it's some, some people are more sensitive to bloating and uh, other bits and pieces, and that all depends on your gut. 
Um, but I, I would say in general, um, anything that's fresh, freshly made, um, basically is without anything unnatural, it's going to be good for you. And I'm not saying you should um, stuff stuff down like I did every day for for, for two years and have loads of pasta. Um, but everybody needs to have a balanced diet. Um, and so, so good pasta and good carbs should form a part of 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 everybody's diets, basically, unless of course you have intolerances or, or similar things. And so it brings me on to obviously you've got a team that work with you now. You've you've got you know um, yeah. managers and front of house and back of house stuff. Yeah. I mean, how how has that been? You know, from running events. I mean, I guess you're used to the planning and the, you know the the experience of going through and putting on events for people, making sure that everything's organised. But how has it been, sort of being a restaurateur? And dealing with the challenges that hospitality has has to offer. Yeah, so I mean, this has been a completely different ball game. I mean, in events, you sort of have a few events and you have breaks in between to plan for them. Um, a restaurant is like a theatre that never stops, basically. <laughs> and I'd say that that's the key difference. It runs seven days a week, twenty four hours a day, basically, um, from if you count um, when deliveries start coming in the mornings to when you close up in the evenings. I mean. Our sites are probably in operation um, the best part of about maybe 16, 18 hours a day. Um, so it's a nonstop operation, and that has its that has enormous challenges um, compared to, let's say, events uh, where you have that. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't. Um, I was I was talking to actually a friend um, the other day just about, and they were just telling me themselves they were like the actual toughness if you think about restaurants is. Um, you basically have to deliver something in perfect time, in perfect quality, um, in the perfect way with a smile on your face every single time. And, and there's not too many in, and that's why I call it like a sort of 24 hour theater. Um, m most jobs will not have that, if that makes sense. You don't have customer after customer, they order their food, they need it in seven minutes, otherwise they're going to be unhappy. Um, you know, so there's, there's very few industries, and I think that's the biggest. That's a, that's the toughest part of restaurants is is that c constant. It doesn't stop basically. Yeah. Um, it's that. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a strong expectation, not to mention the time pressures involved. Plus, also the fact that, yeah, I, I guess uh, I've not owned a restaurant business before, but I know that operating margins can be quite slim. So you you almost have to be open for that period of time, in some cases, to be able to. Uh, to, to turn over a profit or would you say because we are starting to see now with this resource crisis you know we're, we're, we're seeing less and less people in the industry and, and we're just about to publish a study with regards to that and the data from that um yeah but we are starting to see businesses now operating you know they're cutting out lunch services or or they're cutting back on the amount of days that they're they're able to to perform is that something that you've you've had to do or have you been quite sort of lucky with, with regards to keeping hold of all your team um, so, I mean, in general, I think, I don't know if you call it fortunate, there's probably an element of luck in everything. Um, but, but we kept everybody, basically, we kept our whole team throughout the whole pandemic. And we paid, um, I think, a common myth from just the general, um, in the general sort of mainstream media is that um, furlough is this great thing and, and it's free, basically, and it keeps employees on. Um, the number one thing that we should know is that um, but I'd say 30% of, of, of restaurant um, staff's salary is made up of either trunk or tips, um, which was excluded from furlough. And so, so we've had to top up 
um, basically some of our staff's wages over the course of the whole pandemic. Um, and, and for us, we see our teams as a, as a bit more like our extended families. I spend, I dedicate vast, vast portions of my life to Amelia's and, and it, it, it is for me an, an extended family. And, and we, we want to have a culture where people are treated in that way. And, and for us, that meant sort of putting our hands in our pockets a bit during the pandemic. And, and, and we, we basically, we didn't let go of anybody. There were a couple of people who went back home and voluntarily said that they, um, they, they're not sure if they'll come back. Um, but I think there was some maybe Brexit um, sort of effects uh, coming into there as well, basically. So just two, two events at the same time that's pushed people away. Um, but in general, no, I mean, we, we, um, we kept a whole team um, and we, we did our best for them. And, um, and yeah, and obviously some people decided to leave themselves. Some people went on to other careers. Um, but in general, um, we did our best to, to keep our, our team basically. And, um, and yeah, we did have to hire a few more people when we reopen now. Um, but I think that's just naturally part of restaurants basically. Yeah. So. Yeah, it is. And it's good to hear. I, I use the term lucky. And in fact, that's quite a derogative term. I think that, you know, if you've got the right business set up, you've got the the right culture within your organization as well, then it makes it easier for people to decide to come back and come back and work as opposed to, you know, perhaps an environment where you, you don't feel like you you listen to or that you enjoying the work perhaps as much as, as you could have done yeah. in another environment. So, I mean, what sort of key things do you think that, that Amelia's has introduced to that besides the furlough aspect, which is, you know, a great thing to hear? Um, what sort of things have you implemented? Oh, sorry, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, just before I, we go on to this, I'll just finish up. Yeah, so what I meant to say is the biggest misconception is that furlough is free. And it, and it it was for the first few months, but after that, each employer has to pay the national insurance and the pension contributions uh, to each employee for every month they stay. And that works out to between 50 and £150 a month per employee. Mm. Um, so for us, for example, a team of about 30 people, that's about £3,000 a month. Uh, to keep people on furlough. And, and I think that's a big misconception that I don't know if it's the media or the government or it's just a general thing that people don't are not aware of. Um, but I think that people didn't realize that. I think people just thought furlough is, is there and it's all good, basically. Lockdowns are all fine. Everyone's being supported. Um, but it, it, do, it did cost us a lot, you know, um, to, to have furlough and to keep people. Um, with regards to your other question on um, just, just, just what have we done or, or what are we doing? Um, I, I would say we haven't really done anything specific since COVID hit, but we have some principles that we have from pre-COVID um, that I think have carried through and have um, potentially maybe further differentiated us from, um, from other restaurant businesses. Um, number one is we always pay a fair and um, what we think is an equitable wage. Um, we don't pay what we think is the minimum possible, we pay what we think is a fair wage uh, for that job. Um, and so that is always at the living wage, basically. And so, so that's one thing um, that, that we've done and always done. Uh, for me, that's always been important. I, I personally don't um, believe that's their kitchen porter who, who really scrubs dishes um, and, and, and does a really tough job. I, I should note a disclaimer. When we first opened Amelia's, myself and my mum were kitchen porters for many, many weeks at the restaurant. And so I know exactly what they go through and um, basically what, what the job entails. And so for me, I, I never felt that that was a job that was just 
it requires no skill. For me, the kitchen porter is the is sort of the the nuts and bolts to the operation. And when you don't have one, you realize how valuable they are, basically. So um, so yeah, so so for me, it's it, it's it's looking at everything fairly. Um, I, I think that's important. Um, in in terms of salaries, um, number two is the right culture at the company. Um, I think everybody uses the word culture, but I think as COVID hit, I mean, especially as I saw amongst my friends, you could see what uh, companies had good cultures literally a month after it happened because there were some people who were so happy not to be in offices and to be at home, um, which I think tells you how toxic or how bad the culture was at their company. And there were some people who missed their workplace so much. And those were very few, but there were some of those people, again, from my friends. And and for me, that's what, when COVID hit, we just saw black and white um, where you've got good culture and where you don't, basically. Because where you've got a good culture, people want to come back to it. It's not to say they want to be there seven days a week, 24 hours a day, but people want to come to work because they enjoy the people, they enjoy the work, they enjoy the general environment. And and for us, we've always, we've always t- had that as... Um, something extremely close to our hearts. And like I said, I'm very hands-on in the business. Our operations director is also hands-on. So we're in the restaurants all the time. And, and so we want a good environment there. Um, we want it for them. We want it uh, for everybody, basically. So It's amazing to hear. And, and you are right. There was uh, an extremely strong spotlight effect. COVID had this ability to be able to put everything into a perspective for a brief period of time. And... It was yeah. like a paradigm shift, so a perception tilt, whereby, you know, for those who perhaps aren't familiar with the term, is all of a sudden you can see things from a third-person perspective, and it completely changes your view. And you get it from near-death experiences or from major events in your life. And COVID yeah. happened to everyone at the same time. And and I I was a, a byproduct of that as well. You know, I had a a good yeah. job as a sales manager. You know, working for a great company, yeah. but. COVID hit and all of a sudden it made you reassess what was important to you. And for me, you know, I'd lost half of my income was commission and I lost all of that and was on an 80% um, furlough. And I suddenly realized that actually whilst whilst money was important, I'd taken about a 20, 20 K a year pay pay cut straight off the bat. And I wasn't any less happier. I was financially a lot stricter. I had to be, you know, I had to cut back on everything, but it didn't make me any yeah. less happier. And that, for me, was a big aha moment. And I thought, you know what? I need to be spending time doing something that, that fulfills me rather than you know, making loads mm. of money. And, and I'm sure others, I mean, I've got friends out there who have suddenly started businesses and their passion projects. And yeah. you know, it's, been, yeah. it's been very interesting to see um, the results of COVID. And that's talking from a positive point of view, because I know we tend to talk yeah. about it as you know this big, dark thing that's, that has caused a lot of impact in terms of health and finances, but there are some positives to come out of it as well. Yeah, definitely. There is a silver lining and everybody got a chance to reassess their lives. Um, and I don't know maybe how many other times in our lives we're going to have that um, without something happening personally to somebody, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. So, I mean, it leads me, leads me quite nicely onto the subject of like what, what mental health means to, to you, both from a personal standpoint of view and also a restaurateur. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have different sort of ways I see mental health. I mean, I think I'm quite fortunate in that um, I sort of grew up in the generation of this 
you could say Generation, I think Z, I don't know which one specifically, whether it's the Boomers or Generation Z or, or which one it is. But um, I grew up in, in the generation when all this technology and social media started sort of coming into our lives in a big way, basically. Um, so, so I think it's probably a bit easier for me maybe than, than others who are, who are a lot older, more experienced, uh, to, to understand basically mental health from, from a sort of young person's perspective. Um, but but in, in, in general, I, uh, I mean, I think, I think it's a huge topic, so it's hard to give a, 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 more, a more general view. But I, I think in general, I mean, it's become a lot tougher to live uh, for young people uh, for, for a variety of reasons. I think if you look at, let's say, people growing up 20, 30 years ago, um, your distractions were alcohol, booze, cigarettes, I don't know, women, other bits and pieces, you know, the usual stuff, you know. Well, in this day and age, we, we've grown up, we're growing up, and especially the kids now who are sort of 12, 13, 15, 18 years old, they're growing up in an age where they have all these added distractions um, of social media, digital this, digital that, and 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 it's sort of being created in such a way that it's destructive to your brain. Um, and so I'd, I'd say it's much tougher to live these days. Uh, and again, I can't say I, I lived 20, 30 years ago to compare accurately, but just looking at what people say is these added distractions are not just distractions. They're, it's Social media is a drug. I mean, there's no other way to see it. It's addictive. It's the same as coffee or cigarettes or alcohol, like I said, you know. Um, it, it creates, it, it, it manipulates your brain in a way that, that makes it the same way a drug would, you know. It's just it's legal, um, whilst most drugs are not. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think in general, I think that factor has, has severely affected mental health um, for, for young people and made it a lot tougher to grow up, um, I guess, in a more healthy way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, social media has had a big in, impact, both positively and negatively, over the years. And I, 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 when I think back about my earliest experiences of having a, a mobile phone and social media, I have to be honest. Mm. For me personally, I, I perhaps, I, I'm always when I think back, I get flashbacks to like my heart racing when you get a text message, you know, yeah, and that buzz yeah. of someone texting you, and then you keep checking your phone to make sure that that you know you haven't missed something. And I guess even from then, yeah. even before the age of social media, you know, the old Motorola's with the unscrewy, like the bricks, you know, it was, yeah. you were already being programmed to expect something rather than living in the here and now. So I do think it's, um, yeah, it's not conducive to, to good mental well-being if it's, if it's become part of your daily ritual to check it 60 or 70 times. Um, but it is also designed to captivate you. You know, my daughters at the moment are now... You know, one of them's playing um, a game on her tablet called Roblox, and she just spends all this time chatting with other people in a virtual world. And you just think, yeah. like, that's that's not it's not mentally healthy. And we we limit her time with that, and we try and get her away. From yeah. it. But ultimately, if you restrict her completely from doing it, then she's not living with her generation, and then she's not getting involved, and she's been yeah. ostracized. So it's a really it's a really strange it's a really strange situation and i'm sure that at some stage it's going to turn on its head as well i think we'll... yeah definitely i think the the fact we haven't seen any government um i think what's interesting is if you see this 
there's, we see government regulation coming in and stuff like allergies, calorie counting, sugar content and stuff like this, um, which I agree is needed and probably is 10 years too late. Um, but if you look at social media and technology, a lot of this stuff has been around for over 15, 20 years. And it's just extraordinary that this stuff manipulates your brain um, very often in, in not a positive way. But there hasn't been government regulation that deals with this directly. Um, I mean, if you look at stuff like um, stuff that does bad for you, there's usually a restriction or an age limit. You can only start drinking when you're 18 or something, you know. And it's just extraordinary, in my opinion, that, and I think that's why we have this mental health crisis now. It's potentially, I mean, not to not to criticize the government, but but just to sort of put it quite quite lightly, is you've got something that harms people's brains and development. It has to be regulated by the government in some way, shape, or form, and it cannot just be a free for all. These companies create whatever mechanisms or, or things they want to engage us and to increase our screen time at no cost basically sorry at any cost to them um and, and that's how it's been so far it's been they've done anything and everything to keep us glued to keep our attention on their on their platforms um and irrespective of the cost it has to us um in terms of mental health and brain health and, and everything else so mm. Yeah, and it's um, the, we were looking when we we train a lot of colleges on the subject of mental health and stress, just to just to give them a bit of an entry level understanding of it. Because one thing that I wanted to address when I started this was that no one had ever sat down with me at college level and explained what depression was or anxiety was or your relationship of poor diet and poor sleep on yeah. on your health. Um, and one of the stats I pulled out on the infographics I use is a. Uh, it's a time span and it shows you how much of a proportion of a, a young adult's life is spent on social media. And it's something ridiculous, like four years of someone's life is spent now on social media when I think the, the average was about seven to eight years is spent on sleep. So people spend more time now on social media consuming that content than they do actually, you know, most other, most other things like eating, for example. You know, it's a very... Yeah. It's a very scary, scary figure. Um, wow, that, that's a, is that so? That's up to the age of eighteen, four years. No, no, it's on average over the course of a course of a lifetime. It would be so on a course of say between sixty to eighty years. But you know, the, and these are these are figures based now. This is without any developments over the next ten to fifteen years of things that might be able. To yeah, be, yeah, yeah. Get, <laughs> yeah. Get, it's going to be a lot bigger than that. I wouldn't be surprised if it was. 20% of your life or a quarter of your life is spent on your screen or on social media, basically, um, by the time this next generation grows up, basically. Yeah. Well, it's interesting um, now that they've built, they've, they've built the well-being tools on the phone, haven't they? So you can actually see what your screen time is over the course of the day. And sometimes you look at it and it's like three, three and a half hours. And you think, what have I, what could I have achieved in three and a half hours that didn't involve being on the phone? Or what have I missed in life? And yeah. Yeah. what about from a professional standpoint of view? Like what, what has, you know, You've got you've got a team under you now um, that work in in quite yeah. a fast paced environment, as you say. It's open open source, sixteen hours a day, seven seven days a week. How has your sort of consideration of mental health and well being been for for your team members? Um, so, so I think in general, I mean, we I don't like to label it as we're looking after your mental health because I think for a lot of people it makes them feel inferior. Um, for me, I prefer just. To, to set up good habits or systems in, in our 
in our restaurants to make people feel good, you know? And I find that when people have good habits, they want to continue those good habits. And so in general, what we like to do is we, 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 we like to have a cap on the working hours that people can work. Um, we like to, we have caps on the, the number of shifts people can do back to back. Um, we encourage everybody during their breaks to go outside because near our restaurants, we actually have really nice little parks and green areas. So we always encourage that just to get away from stuff, just to, um, uh, just to relax a bit. Um, but in, in general, the, I think the tough thing is that um, what we try to do is we're not there to overstep the boundary, if that makes sense. At the end of the day, every human has their own choices as to how they want to live their lives. Um, and whether or not that's detrimental to them is their choice. And, and we can only sort of let them know what we think is best practice or, or what is a bad habit. And, and it's up to them, basically. Mm. Um, I, I think that... Um, employers do have a, a responsibility and, and we take that quite seriously um, in terms of people's well-being. For me, I care more about what I, what I like to say to our teams is um, I, I want them to be happy, you know, because at the end of the day, majority of people in this world spend over 50% of their lives at work. Um, so if you're not happy at work or you're not happy in general, um, you probably shouldn't be here. Um, and, so, so that's the first thing. We just like to encourage people to be happy, whether that's going on holidays, spending time with their families or friends or not overworking them. We try to just take quite a tailored approach, and I think it's definitely a lot easier in a smaller company um, because we've got about, I think, six, six, um, six line managers in the company. Um, and, and, and so it's a lot easier because, because we talk to them daily, basically. But I think it's when you get to bigger organizations and you start to have people who again, are not happy at work and their ma management level, that starts to breed a, a toxic or negative environment because they're not happy. They don't care about others' happiness. And, and that essentially just breeds unhappiness. Um, and so, yeah, so what we try and encourage is, for me, I'm like, if you're happy at work, you're going to do a good job probably and you're going to enjoy your life. And, and I don't want to hold anyone at Amelia's who, who doesn't want to be there, basically. Um, and, and I think that we're just quite open about that always with people. And we're like, sometimes people have been with us a year and they say, you know what, I think it might be time for me to move on, you know, and, and, and we're always accepting of that. And then some people say they want to come back uh, afterwards. They go do some stuff elsewhere. And they're like, actually, loved it here. I want to come back, you know. And so, so we actually find our teams is that people who, let's say, who, who have left, they still come back every few months just to spend half a day and see how everyone's doing. So we like to have a culture where sort of everyone is, you could almost say friends um, um, at work basically. And everybody is um, generally just try to hire people, good people who work hard, um, who, who want to be part of Amelia's and the journey basically. Um, it's good to hear. And what about yourself as well? I mean, obviously from the sound of things, you're, you're, you're not, not a, not a man who's scared of a bit of hard, hard work and hard graft and, you know, to build, to, to build uh, an events business when you are, you know, when a lot of us are still trying to figure out what to do with our lives and starting a restaurant and working you know, multiple days. Yeah. How do you, how do you keep yourself firing on all cylinders at top performance? Um, well, well, for me, I, I think I just try and understand what I need as a person. Um, so, so I basically, I have quite strict, um, strict routines. Um, for me, I understand I need to have good sleep. I need, I, 
I'm a big sports person, so I, I play tennis, football, and and do swimming once a week. So all three things every week. Um, and for me, I, I I know that so long as I get good good rest, um, surround myself with with good people who are happy and who want to be who want to be here, so to speak. Um, and I keep my own routine in check. Um, I, I'll be happy, you know, um, because I love what I do. So. <laughs> Um, so, so that that's my sort of my. I don't think there's a secret. I think the secret is is the toughness. The, the toughness is is it's it's actually quite simple to if you think about it. If you take away everything, all the distractions away from your life, it's quite simple. If you have good relationships and you do work that you love, and you, in general you have good habits in your life, or you don't wake up and spend three hours on social media and then uh, have a coke and then have a chocolate and then. Do you know what I mean? That, that's never going to lead to to a happy and healthy life, you know. And and, th- and this is where I think the the sort of there's a bit of a delicate line with mental health. And I think um, the key thing is educating people on habits and what's good for you and what's not. Um, but at the end of the day, if somebody wants to then not follow that, that's up to them. Um, but they, but then for them to then complain and say I'm suffering, I think is a bit it's tough, you know. I understand everybody has different lives and uh, things are not always easy but but in general if if you're guided and you have that guidance which i think a lot of people don't i think that's one of the biggest problems is the education having a mentor having guidance uh, having good influences um that that's that's sort of the key to it um and i i think again if you're going back to that mental health is not in my opinion the government telling people educating them to say you could have anxiety, you could have this. It's about saying, well, actually, forget about that, but let's encourage everyone to sleep well, you know. Let's encourage everyone to intake, um, you know, good foods. Let's not encourage companies who are manufacturing food that's completely destroying your body, you know. Mm. Um, These are all the things that ultimately let's regulate um, the drug of social media, and let's make let's regulate it in a way so that, like you said, the positives outweigh the negatives. Because for me, I think for the vast majority of the population, the negatives outweigh the positives at the minute um, because it's completely unrestricted and it's made to be very addictive. Um, and at the end of the day, I think these are the things that need to happen um, in order for, for people to improve their mental health. I think you can educate people all you want, but at the end of the day, if they've got that distraction on their phone 30 times a day, they're going to be glued to their phone the whole day, you know? Um, unfortunately, that's the way they've programmed it, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I think it almost w- makes it a bit worse when you you know, you sort of know you have anxiety, for example, but you don't know how to deal with it, right? I think that's even worse is when you're stuck in that cycle of, you just don't know how to deal with it because you haven't been educated. You haven't been told what the problems could be. Um, so, so I think that's the root problem uh, of 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 um, the mental health crisis at the minute is um, there's a lack of government guidance and government regulation on various aspects of things. And I think there should be a there should be a huge amount. I mean, as an example, I mean, the one of the most important factors in terms of um, not having serious effects from COVID um, has been being healthy, right? 
Um, so again, in my opinion, it's a perfect time that that education is brought there, you know, and, th and that's also what we try and do a bit. We try to, through ourselves and our managers, we try and just talk about it and, and just talk about what are good habits, what are habits that maybe you do, but you don't realize are bad for you, you know? Um, and I think that that's what we do, but I think the government and, um, hopefully guys like, like, um, like, like your organization, um, will hopefully f focus on that and, and actually, um, tell people because a lot of people I know know social media is bad for them, but they have no idea how to, how to limit it or control it or how to build habits that, for example, um, take away your addictiveness to it. You know, they don't realize that actually if you put your phone away for three hours and you just spend some time with your friends kicking a football around, actually for that day in general, your mental health improves drastically. And then the next day you're not so addicted to your phone, if that makes sense, you know? And, and I think, again, it's these small habits that, that will influence, if people are educated about that, that's what will ultimately, um, I think, will change young people's mental health. At the minute, all they read about is that X number of 30% of whatever people under the age of 18 suffer from or anxiety or depression. And, and people read that and they're like, yeah, that's me. But then they, they have no idea what to do about it. Mm. Um, and I think that's the biggest problem because you're in that vicious cycle where you know something's wrong, but you don't know what to do about it. You're scrolling on social media, getting your Deliveroo instant this, instant that, and you're not actually, someone never explained to you in life that actually when you, whatever, go to the shop, you get fresh air, you see other humans, you, all of these small things contribute to, to your, to your well-being. Um, and I think a lot of people don't, don't recognize all of those small things and, every human will have about 100 or 200 of those things a day. Um, and if you miss half of them, well, unfortunately, that, that is a big problem, basically. Are you familiar with the, the can-do? Uh, I, I guess the correct terminology is method or acronym, can-do? No, I'm not. I'm not, no. So can-do is, is, and it's something that we talk to, again, students and people that we talk to during our training modules, but can-do is about, spending an hour a day doing can do and can do is communicate activity nice be nice and kind to people discover yeah. so discover and learn new skills you know learn about yourself learn a new hobby and observe yeah and so if you trying to put like if you do 20 minutes of worth of activity a day you're nice to someone for five minutes of the day you're you know you spend 15 minutes a day learning a new skill or developing a new dish or doing something that's creative and then you spend 10 to 5 10 15 minutes at the end of the day observing being mindful living in the present here and now then all of those things if you build that into your daily ritual can actually be conducive to to improving your overall well-being because they're all things that are you know extremely important nutrition is the only thing that's missed off of there but you know nice nutrition yeah. you could put that in but it's a really simple way of starting to build a framework where actually you can start to to perhaps change some things in life that might have led you down that path in the first place yeah definitely i think that that's a, a great framework and it and it sounds like it's very simple and to the point and um the that people that people can follow basically um, so yeah, I think I think that sort of stuff is brilliant, and hopefully will help people. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I, as a, as as you said, like education is key. Like, 
a lot of people don't know enough about this subject. I only learned about it through the last two years of doing what I do. So, um, you mm. know, this is why we provide things like the Burnt Chef Academy for free. And we put like we're building a nutritionist course on there at the moment. We're building one about sleep and one about mindful drinking and all of these other subjects that we just take for granted. Yeah but actually are conducive to, you know, if we're, if we're more educated about it, then we're able to be able to spot, stop and swap, you know, certain behaviors. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, 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 I, but I think again, what, one of the root problems, um, unfortunately, um, it is to do with the brain. And if you, I don't know if you, how familiar you are with just, if you take drugs on a, on a regular basis, your brain changes basically. Um, and the chemicals in your brain change, the actual sort of um, matter or the mass in your brain changes a bit. And ultimately, if somebody's being a drug addict, i.e. they've been addicted to social media for many months, it's, it's very hard to get them out of that. It's the same sort of rehabilitation process that you would go through historically if somebody had an addiction to cocaine or something. Um, and, and that's where I think in that this, this has created an an epidemic of sort of of drugs but not physical drugs digital drugs <laughs> um for everybody and, and I, I think it needs a much bigger response because if you look at the amount of ways we have of treating drug addictions in reality from helplines to rehab centers to education to resources it's very different for a social media uh, addiction which i think is the biggest problem of the generation one of the things that resonates with me about that and addiction specifically, it was, I was at a talk with Russell Brand a couple of years back and he's, he's obviously, yeah. you know, he's well known as, as being an ex heroin addict and he's, you know, he's, he's gone through the 12 steps yeah. now, yeah. but he's yeah. rewritten the 12 steps, which resonated with me beautifully, which, and the first step was like, you know, um, talking about higher powers and resigning yourself to the fact that there's a problem. He's like, are you a bit fucked? And do you need to unfuck yourself? If so, like, are you are you are you in a position right now where you can actually say, actually, yeah, I think I'm a bit fucked. Whether, whether it be social media, drugs, relationships, whatever it might be. Then the second mm. thing is like, okay, so you are a bit fucked. What are you going to do to unfuck yourself? And then are you, yeah. and then the, it goes on. But like the fourth step of that was quite quite powerful, and it was an inventory process. So it's a case of you write down your action. You write down how it makes mm -hmm. you feel, how it could potentially make others feel and what you might be missing as a result of that and what you can do to change that behavior. And you start rather cathartically, like journaling, you write it down. So it's like, oh, when I saw this person, I felt the need to go on my phone as a distraction. I felt this because I wasn't confident or I didn't feel like I was on the same level yeah. as that individual, but actually there's no difference, you know, I'm still a human being and blah, blah, blah. And you start to actually identify yeah. those thought processes. So with addiction, it's really, really useful. And it's, um, yeah, I urge anyone to go and to go and check that out. Um, it does take hard work, but uh, I think, you know, like, like most addictions. Yeah, I, I think it. the key thing with that process is somebody has to want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they have to have got to two steps before that. They have to, A, acknowledge they've got a problem, and then, B, they have to want to solve it. I think the problem with most people is, the, and not sorry, their problem, but the problem that's when they you do have an addiction that is put upon you and you get into it is that it, it, essentially you know there's a problem and you want to solve it. You don't know where to start, um, but some people also don't want to solve it. 
Um, they, they, they just want to say they've got a problem and that's it, you know? And so I think it takes time to get from recognizing the problem then to wanting to solve it. And often that's after quite a detrimental period. So. Yeah, I mean, one of our ambassadors has spoken quite openly, Adam Simmons, about yeah his experiences with, with addiction and, and you know the framework that he has had to build around his life to be able to to deal with that. And it's, it's a long and it's an arduous road. But ultimately, he had hit rock bottom, and that's the reason why he had started to, to explore it as a subject matter. But, yeah, again, mm. this is why the Burnt Chef Project have put in place things like the Burnt Chef Support Service, which is, you know, a free text-based service whereby even at three o'clock in the morning, if you're if you're at home and you're feeling lonely or, you know, you are you are experiencing an addiction or, or any other matter for that for that for that matter, mm. you can text someone and get a response within a few minutes so that you're not alone in that moment of need. And hopefully that just in, in itself will gently encourage you to to to. Well, we will sign. Yeah, we'll sign that's, post a great, that's a great. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great sort of first step to start helping people out, basically. Mm. And we're extending that as well. So we're going to be um, offering some free counselling off of the back of that free half an hour cognitive behavioural therapy and um, and a whole host of other other services. Um, kindly sort of uh, in partnership with the Drinks Trust. So, um, we've covered quite a lot of topics during this conversation. I guess for me, like the the sort of key takeaways for this is that you know you 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 have to work work hard to be able to achieve great things but also at the same time everything's a, a, is an equal balance everything in moderation and equilibrium and also you are effectively what you eat as well which is yeah you know, what our mothers <laughs> always told us and we we're like yeah yeah fine um but it's a very very yeah. true thing i mean was there anything else in particular that you you know you you felt that people should hear yeah, no, I, I think just as a final stage, I mean, you mentioned that there are people obviously who are listening who might be thinking about starting their own business or um, do, doing stuff like that. And I, I just wanted to sort of revisit one of the previous points is that if, 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 you, if you are looking to achieve a disproportionate level of success, um, then you have to be pre- prepared to go through a disproportionate amount of pain or sacrifice. And I think that's one topic that's often overlooked um, just in general, because I think uh, mental health is very important. And I know founders, including myself and others, um, probably don't have the best mental health at all times just because of all the emotional roller coasters we're going on um, all, all the time. But um, that's in pursuit of a bigger vision, if that makes sense. And, and that's a voluntary choice I make. It's not something that somebody has forced me to do. And I think um, I, I think one thing that I... I think is important is if, if you do want to try and achieve a disproportionate level of success, um, be prepared for for um, for the pain that goes with it and also for having to deal with it. Um, and it becomes even harder to balance and to keep your mental health in shape when you're trying to achieve something um, disproportionately, let's say, larger than just the average, basically. Um, and I think that's sometimes overlooked because especially in recent times, we we've seen a lot of media coverage about, I think um, there was a tennis player who, who was uh, quite a famous uh, female tennis player suffering from mental health. There's quite a few founders of big tech companies that have been quite in the media about it. And I, I think it's obviously it's good they raise awareness of it because um, maybe people weren't talking about it previously. But I also think on the flip side, these people are achieving an extreme disproportionate level of success, whether financially or fame-wise or in other ways, so, so there is a, a benefit to it, 
for them, if that makes sense. And they've consciously or, or sometimes unconsciously made that choice to sacrifice that in return for that, basically. Um, and so I think everybody creates their own balance. And, and so that's why for me myself, I think um, I, I, I'm personally, I'm not a, too much of a believer of um, sort of crying and whining about my own mental health because essentially I've picked my, the journey I want to take. You know, I've voluntarily chosen where I want to work, what I want to do. Um, so, and it's like, there's a lot, there's a lot of people in finance, um, they have to work very long hours and it's very stressful and it's very strenuous because you're there weekends and weeks, but then you also get a very disproportionate compensation for that. Um, and, and that's sort of how the world works, if that makes sense. Um, if, if, if they didn't, if, if they didn't want you to, uh, if it, do you know what I mean? I mean, nothing comes for free in this world, right? So, yeah, um, I, mean, I think I think and, and, a lot of our- and and that's what I think. Just, just to summarize, I think that's what needs to be differentiated: is the mental health of those people who have voluntarily picked a path to go down that they know is going to be stressful, that holds ex- immense rewards at the end of the journey. Um, they've picked that very voluntarily. I think it's very different, let's say, to the mental health of a fifteen-year-old kid who basically phones have just been put in front of them and they've become addicted to social media. And as a result of that, their mental health is, is struggling. And that's what I want to differentiate is that one is a voluntary choice that you've gone down. And yes, I, I don't disagree. I'm sure it's very tough as a founder or as anybody who's, who's trying to achieve a lot. Um, but it's a very different situation because I voluntarily picked to become a founder and to go through that stress. Um, whilst a 12-year-old child hasn't um, it's consciously or with an adult mind picked that decision and they've become addicted and their mental health has suffered without them even realizing it, basically. And so I think there's different, that's just the two subtle differences because, again, I believe the media puts it all into one big basket and, and I believe the focus should be on the ones who, who is not their fault, basically. You- I understand where you're coming from. I don't don't particularly always agree with with all the points. In- okay. <laughs> okay. And, no, fair and it's it's a matter. Yeah. I think it's a matter of points of view. And and you know what? That that's your point of view, and that works that works well well for yourself. I know, being a founder of you know a, a rapidly growing nonprofit, that my mental health um, I experience difficulty as well. And yes, this is the path that I've chosen. But I think that there are certain people out there who perhaps are experiencing difficulties with their mental health, who have set upon themselves, a, you know, whether that's starting a business or, you know, achieving accolades that perhaps feel that whilst their intentions were quite clear to begin with about you know, getting yeah. those those goals, ultimately they've lost control over that at some stage and now they've become a slave to it. So I think, you know, just to say that, everyone you know it's 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 your choice. oh definitely i know i totally agree with you so i didn't mean to have a <laughs> so in, in statement. yeah 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 uh, it, no i totally agree with you i totally like i said it can happen and, and you don't realize it and then it um and you like you said you become a slave to it so yeah it's it, i think it's horses for courses each each individual case is you know people are people are unique everyone's unique we're whilst we're built the same as carbon-based life forms we have our own yeah. you know we have our own um unique challenges and i think that no one mental illness is the same as as another it's unique to each individual as well and it can, exactly and it yeah. for completely different different reasons i talk a lot about 
uh, the human givens approach, which is quite a holistic approach to mental illness in terms of the fact that it's it's meant they believe that mental illness is predominantly produced by uh, your environment uh, and situations mm. that have happened in your life, such as, you know, childhood trauma, such as your, you know, lack of control, lack of being out in the environment, you know, all of these sort of uh, these aspects. Um, but it's also important to realize as well that, you know, and important to mention that not all mental illnesses are, are as a result of that. Some are, you know, chemically and biolog biologically um, yeah. driven. So it's de very, very unique. No, I, I definitely agree. I think that, I think that's a probably the most important point is, is that a lot of us are not to blame for our own stuff. It's how we've grown up. It's, it's sort of who our parents were, where the, how they brought us up, you know? Um, and yeah, I totally agree. I think that is just going on to my previous point. I, I guess I just try to give a bit of a framework for the sort of high intensity life type um, thing. But I do agree if, if you've had a bad environment growing up, then it, that will affect you no matter what you try and do in, in your later life, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly did with me. I, I learned, I learned some things at an early age that um, that did impact me uh, in terms of my mental well-being. So, and then that carried on through with me until until my late my my yeah my late twenties, really. Um, as a final sort of question for you, like if you were to to yeah. sort of go back in time, meet your sixteen-year-old self, and give yourself some advice, what sort of advice would you uh, would you give yourself, if any? Um, I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, um, I, I'd say pr probably a couple of things. Um, um, I would say one, um, it's a, it's important who you get your advice and your guidance from. Um, that's extremely important. I always tell people, don't get business advice from someone who hasn't started a business, and don't get marriage advice from someone who's divorced. You know, um, but th the general point is that there's a lot of people giving advice to everyone um, about everything, but most people, most of us don't really know much about life ourselves, let alone um, giving advice to others. Um, so number one is, um, is who look, look very carefully to who you look up to for advice and guidance. Um, and I think number two is um, be, conf be more confident in yourself and to avoid distractions. I, th I think that's the, one of the harder things um, that the young people now are growing up with. And just being able to avoid, people want to, people always want things and apps want your attention and people want your attention and parents want your attention. Everybody always wants your attention, basically. <laughs> and being able, being able to, to manage that, um, I think is, is very crucial to being happy, basically. So. It's a key thing, I think. I like that. Being able to say no, which isn't something that we're taught with, really, are we? Yeah. And, and I think, actually, to be honest, that's what is, again, I, I know a, a lot of um, in mental health sort of um, um, charities, are, uh, I spoke to one previously at my college, basically, and they always say learn to say no. And whilst I think to a person who thinks well and has a well-wired brain, that's a good piece of advice. I think to tell someone who's let's say been manipulated by their parents or their friends to say no is extremely difficult, and I don't think they get it. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. for them, saying no means I'm going to go and get into more trouble and more trauma because of it, basically. Um, and 
so yeah, like I said, I, I think again, it depends, but in general, I think the, the advice is, is correct. But I think for people who need that advice, I think that advice often can cause more problems than it can create solutions, basically. Yeah, just it backs you into a corner, doesn't it? I think I've I've you know, I've been there, and, and I think a lot of people will resonate with that. It's um, it's sometimes easier said than done, especially when you feel like you've got no control over that situation. But being able to, I think the key. Thing yeah, exactly. So if you have no control over the situation, as you said, for you to say no is like that's that's that. I mean, that's tough. You're never going to do that, you know. <laughs> yeah, true. But I think also at the same time, I think you, you can. If you feel strongly about something and you do believe, you know, again, talking about gut instinct, something doesn't feel right, then you can draw the line in the sand and you can almost determine how you choose to respond to those to those, those situations. Mm. Um, you know, irrespective of what that might be, I think that, you know, sometimes, like, for example, in a stressful situation, you could choose to completely and utterly lose your head and, you know, you could be aggressive or you could become withdrawn. Or you could choose to look at it from a pragmatic, from a pragmatic uh, outlook and look at it as, a, as the situation, as a moment in time that will pass and then we can move on or as a problem to, to solve with, you know, yeah. with tenacity. So there's, I think there's, it's all about, again, perceptions. But I think that if you can look at a problem like that and you can say no, not necessarily verbally, but you can say no to, to, to how you might react to that. I think is a, is a key thing, but again, that's not something we're taught. It's yeah. something we have to learn and develop as a skill set, and it uh, yeah, yeah. It, takes, it takes time. It takes time. Yeah. But um, yeah, definitely. Thank yeah. you ever so much for joining me. I mean, if our listeners wanted to find you online, whereabouts could they find you? Um, I mean, you can find Emilia's past on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. Um, yeah, E M I L I A S P A S T A. Um, so yeah, you can find us across all socials. Um, if you if you love the world of pasta, basically. <laughs> nice, thank you. And just where did the name come from? Just out of curiosity. Um, so it's an interesting one. I mean, half of the name is actually a, a personal secret, um, so I don't share that with anybody. But the other half, so it's sort of a double-edged name, basically. But the other half comes from the Emilia-Romagna region in Italy, which is the center of food. Um, in Italy, and Emilia-Romagna is, is the region where you have Modena, Parma, um, Parmigiano-Reggiano, so it's basically all balsamic vinegar, it's all your sort of, um, it's, I guess it's a very fertile part of the country uh, in terms of both agriculture and, um, and food and drink in general. Um, so yeah, it's all, I think historically it was also previously one of the centers of food in Europe, before you had the maps of France and Italy and stuff like that, it was considered to be the one of the best places for food, basically. So, um, and with DOP, DOP status yeah. as well, hey? Um, yeah, so, so, so DOP basically is, um, is a denomination of, of origin, a protected denomination of origin, basically. Um, and it basically it relates to certain um, suppliers and products, and you have a lot of suppliers and products in, the, in that area uh, who have certified products, uh, basically. Um, but it doesn't mean all of them do. Uh, it's just something to note. Hey. No, thank you very much. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. And um, yeah, I look forward to chatting to you again at some stage. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, really, really interesting to discuss um, just general mental health and, and what we can do to tackle it. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Speak soon. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Burnt Chef Journal. 
If you haven't yet checked out the Burnt Chef Project website, then please head over to www.theburntchefproject.com. You'll find a whole host of resources, free access to our training app, as well as free support services, blog posts, our merchandise store, and also our ambassadors who are there to support you when you need it. Thanks again for joining us this week, and I'll see you again soon.